Hello, listeners. Yamina here. Welcome to the Dr. GBCR podcast. Before we dive into this episode, we have a few announcements to make. First, we'd like to thank our Dr. GPCR ecosystem partners for their support, namely Domain Therapeutics, GPCR Therapeutics, Design Pharmaceuticals, Montana Molecular, and Orion Biotechnology. Last month, we launched the Dr. GPCR Symposia event series. Our first symposium was on March 24th, 2023, and it was on challenging GPCRs. It was a day filled with amazing talks, great discussions, and we hope the beginning of new collaborations. In case you missed it, you can watch the talks in the Dr. GPCR ecosystem with your premium membership. Also, mark your calendars for the next symposium coming up on May 19th, during which we will hear from speakers on GPCR activation and signaling. At all our symposia events, including the one coming in May, all trainees are welcome to present a poster. There won't be any poster selections, and everyone is welcome to join us for the poster slash networking time. For more information and an updated schedule can be found in the ecosystem. The easiest way to get to it is to use the links in the footer and look for Dr. GPCR Symposia. You can join us live by making marking your calendar and becoming a Dr. GPCR Ecosystem free site member. To navigate the ecosystem again, please use the direct links in the footer. And now let's dive into this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Yamina from Dr. GPCR, and today I'm very excited to have with me Chloe Hicks. Um, she is she has accepted very quickly to join me on the podcast. And it's a topic Chloe and I are gonna uh, talk about a little bit. But um, hi, Chloe. Nice to have you hi. on. Hi, Yamina. Thanks so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. Thank you so much for for joining us. And why don't we start uh, by a short introduction? If you can tell us who you are and where you come from. Sure. Um, my name is Chloe Hicks. I'm a senior undergraduate here at Duke University. I uh, grew up in Burlington, North Carolina, so I've been in North Carolina all of my life. And in terms of just how I got into science during um, my undergraduate career, I kind of had a few detours on the way before coming into the Rajagopal lab, where um, starting my freshman year, I joined a cancer lab. <clears throat> Couldn't quite tell you what the research was exactly because I wasn't very studious as a freshman, but um, that experience, I just didn't have a, it had a lack of structure that I needed of somebody telling me to come in and uh, what experiments I'll be doing and explaining like the background to me. So um, like with that, there was only a semester of that before I started realizing maybe that wasn't for me. And then my freshman spring semester COVID hit. So um, we all went home. And then the following semester, I um, used, they have at Duke this um, thing called the Muser app, where you can kind of apply to research opportunities through that, which is a really great resource for undergraduates. But I joined um, a research project of a grad student that was looking to isolate a specific type of bacteria strand. And that whole project, if you could call it that, was I was one step in isolation protocol where I um, pipetted out the organic layer of a um, isolated or a filtration. And um, it just wasn't fulfilling at all because I was just pipetting every a few hours every week. And um, fortunately, at that time, I started to get more into pharmacology and the idea of like the intersection. I like the intersection of biology and chemistry with a more of a medicine base than just a straight like biochemistry major. So when I was looking at labs that had had um, 
pertain to pharmacology, uh, Sudar's lab showed up. So I was reached out to him over email and I was very fortunate that at that time, um, my grad student mentor, Dylan, was looking to take on another undergraduate student. So um, that's kind of my detour to getting into GPCRs. There is a little bit of trial and error, a little bit of luck, but um, yeah, that's kind of how I got into GP GPCR research. That's awesome. And uh, you mentioned Dylan, you're, you're, you're thinking about Dylan Iger, who was also <laughs> on the podcast. And I, I loved, I loved talking to him. And um, since the whole lab works on CXCR3, which is one of my favorites, um, you know, the, the Sudar's lab has a special place in my heart when it comes to the target itself. And we were joking earlier this week, or actually last week at the GPCR's targeted drug discovery summit, and was, we were having lunch and as we were talking about CXCR3 and so I was like, yeah, you scooped us, Yamina. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but yeah. it's interesting that as I told him, I didn't even know at the time that you guys were interested in CXCR3. So I'm just happy that I was able to put in a grain of sand into the CXCR3 realm. Yeah, and I'm so thrilled you understand the struggle of looking at endogenous ligands with all the chemokine receptors where they just activate everything. But yeah, yeah it's a great system for looking at. For us by signaling but yeah yeah and it's funny because at the time when i i worked on i well characterizing the different splice variants mm -hmm. and that was such a it was it's, it was a hard project it was during my postdoc and i'm glad and as tom sackmore said last week you should be proud because it's the it hasn't been, there hasn't been a paper that came out with a single author in addition to the PI on it. And it was super hard, but it was so much fun working on this, on this receptor. Yeah. And I'm glad you did too. So we didn't have. <laughs> yes. I kind of like paved the way for a lot of things. I told you do not work on the alternative variant because that's a weird one. Yeah. Although I'd be, I'd be very interested in seeing um, that receptor or that protein from a, from a heterodimerization perspective. That would be really interesting. Then again, uh, I don't work in the lab anymore. Maybe someone listening to it sooner, if you're listening and you feel <laughs> like taking more project. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so tell me a little bit, you mentioned, you know, being an undergrad and also starting to work a little bit in the lab and being like, this is really boring because I'm here pipetting a couple of times a week, but mm -hmm. as a, as a teenager or as a child, were you always interested in science? So um, as a child, I was quite um, delusional in my um, aspirations <laughs> where I think there was one point that sticks out to me where I wanted to be a zookeeper. And the reason for that is because the movie Zookeeper with Kevin James just came out where he yeah. talks to animals in it. So I yeah. just thought that would be incredible if I could do that as a career. So as a child, it was a lot of just fantastical ideas, but I um, never really or I didn't really consider science seriously until high school where um, I realized I was good at science. So it was something that I liked doing, but um, in terms of just considering it as a career point or as medicine specifically, I don't think it was until I think my senior year of high school where um, my grandmother, she was diagnosed with lung cancer and um, a part of that, yeah, well, a part of that um, coping mechanism for me was I picked up a book on uh, immunotherapy specifically it talked about chimeric antigen receptor t cells i knew nothing about immunotherapy or cancer treatment at that time so it was an easy book to understand in that way but it was just so interesting to see the science involved and in, like being able to take someone's t cells and modify it 
so that yeah. it could potentially target an antigen in uh, the body. I just thought that was so cool. But more than that, I just really uh, was inspired by the hope of like the voice of it, which I've seen reflected through like so many different scientists that I've talked to since then, where they're just so optimistic about the potential of their fields and of um, the the fact that they don't have answers yet, but that they're getting closer to it. And um, I just really um, loved that enthusiasm and that optimism for um, increasing the potential or just using that potential to further a field. So I think that's when I really started to consider medicine as well as science in a more uh, serious uh, career choice, I guess. Yeah. So you mentioned science in general. Was there uh, any specific topic that you preferred or <laughs> you liked all of them? the same well in high school it was chemistry because um it made sense in high school they make it seem like the pattern of chemistry is very simple then I got to college and I realized that's not the case and I don't like uh chemistry so much anymore so then I started getting uh was more interested in biology and originally was on the track for just like strictly biology but um I really did like the intersection with pharmacology of both chemistry and biology where it was like you had more chemistry, but it wasn't like serious, like a high orbital, like all of the um, different theoretical stuff of chemistry that kind of yeah. went over my head a little bit and um, was I wasn't as interested in. But yeah, I think just like the uh, more pharmacological basis behind science is really what interests me, like different sort of targets or um, therapeutics was um, something that I took a lot of interest in. I love it. And I, and I can relate to the chemistry thing. I loved chemistry up until I got to, to college and university. And I was like, well, I, despite my best effort, this is just not working. I just don't get it. <laughs> and I, I actually, I even deferred one, one course to the summer because I was like, I just can't handle six or eight classes and chemistry was one of those where I was like okay I'm, I just hope to pass exactly yeah organic chemistry was the same way for me I was yes like, yeah uh, yeah and I, and, and I really wanted to understand it. it's funny because we had two exams one mid-semester and then at the end the one at during mid-semester was always always got 80 85 percent and at the end tanked it but thank god it kind of <laughs> leveled yeah. out but it was just such a difficult I just I just couldn't get it yeah so but then I do understand that the chemistry must be respected exactly exactly we need it but yeah yeah no it's agreed interesting part to me yeah and um so you you also mentioned this so now you're you work in in Sudar's lab um and you're an, a senior undergraduate mm -hmm. what does that look like uh what do your days look like so at this point, um, as a senior, I have, um, I'm taking three classes currently, but they're a lot more low yield than they were my sophomore and junior year, where I was trying to finish up the pre-med requisite, prerequisites like physics and biochemistry and organic chemistry. So my days now are just very much, I'm in the lab when I um, can be, which is most of the time. So um, I'm currently in the process of working on my senior thesis right now which um, is making headway, but we still have a links to go. But um, yeah, so um, in terms of like the layout of what my undergraduate experience in the lab looked like, it was a few hours a week 
in my sophomore year where I was starting to get um, comfortable with the assays. I stayed for the summer and got a lot more um, comfortable with those assays and understanding uh, the GPCR field in general. And then junior year, it kind of amped up like I was in lab between classes, but it wasn't to the extent that it is now where um, I work uh, primarily independently. Dylan's now in the hospital and I work alongside Julia. We are um, both seniors that are just in the lab when we can be, which is most of the time and just working on getting this project out. So it's really fun time. I really love the independence that I have this year, especially. And I'm just, I'm just enjoying it and learning from all of the great uh, grad students and Sudar and everyone in the lab. It's a good opportunity. I love it. I love it. Um, I want to point out that I'm very happy that you accepted to join on the podcast. And we've talked about it a little bit before hitting record because um, we've been struggling to get trainees on the podcast. And I've been emphasizing this. And that's why I'm taking a minute here to to make to like emphasize to listeners that everyone is welcome in the podcast. You do not have to have 50 years of experience in the GPCR field because your experience is unique and it might help someone listening to, to your experience. Um, plus also as a guest, I feel like it's good, you know, whatever, wherever you go, you say, well, I was on this podcast and it That's also true. helps. It sorry. also helps. Oh, no, no worries. No, no. Uh, there's a delay. So if, if you feel like I'm interrupting you, I'm sorry <laughs> about yeah. that. Uh, but I think it's also a good thing to put on your resume at some point or your CV because you also develop communication skills and soft skills. And you can you you show that you can have a high level conversation around a scientific topic. Yeah. So this is where I'm going to conclude my my invitation to everyone in the GBCR field. If you received an email from us, please join us on the podcast. If you have not and you want to join us on the podcast, there is a submission form on the podcast page at the top where you can just apply. What it means is that you just tell us that you're interested and we're definitely going to going to reach out. Um Getting back to you, uh, Chloe, it's funny because you were mentioning, you know, between courses being in the lab, I did exactly the same thing. Um, I had a summer during undergrad where you had to work in the lab. And after that, instead of going to do any some any random job, um, I asked my PI, I said, look, I can come in between classes. Is there a project for me? And I ended up doing a master's and a PhD and spending almost 10 years in the same lab because it was so much fun doing this type of work. What was your experience when you joined Suda's lab? And um, like, what did you like about the lab, about the projects, about the people that made you think, made you stay? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, um, I think one of the big things at the um, start of it that really stuck out to me, so I would attend the lab meetings and um, everyone, like people would present data, but um, throughout it, every, all of the grad students were participating and asking questions and bouncing ideas off of each other. So, and it's still that way with a lot of the lab meetings where um, it's partially you're presenting to the, the data, but it's also just everyone's kind of bouncing ideas off of each other, uh, bringing up other previous papers that cited this. And it's a very creative environment for that. It's very, um, yeah, it's very, what is it, collaborative in that way. And I think that's uh, replicated in a lot of the GPCR fields or the GPCR labs here at Duke. It's an extremely 
collaborative um, place I've found, which I uh, personally really appreciate, where you can go to other labs for and questions about specific assays that they do or reagents. And we have data club, which is this situ this thing where once a week people present their data to all of the lab GPCR labs here. And it's just an extremely collaborative environment that I really appreciate having just the insight of all these brilliant scientists. I uh, really appreciated that. And then the other thing was just, I had uh, the mentor Dylan who invested time and energy into like teaching me the field, asking me questions about interpreting data, like challenging me to read the literature and to understand further what we're doing to the point that I could then figure out the next step in that process. So I really just appreciated all of the different like collaboration, creativity, independence and challenging environment that I was given through uh, Sudar's lab. That's amazing. And I, as I mentioned, I've interacted with Dylan. He was on the podcast. He also presented at the Dr. GPCR summit and he's just, oh my God, his presentation was like so amazing, spot on. He's amazing. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm sure he's going to do amazing as an MD PhD um, as well. Um, you mentioned a little bit about how you got into, into studying GPCRs and how you, you, well, actually through through Dylan, basically, and through being in Sudar's lab. But do you remember the first time you heard about GPCRs? I think it was um, looking at Sudar's page, because at that point I hadn't taken um, biochemistry and biology uh, intro classes were mostly DNA uh, clone or uh, just DNA based in evolution. So it was mm -hmm. just I looked at his page and I said, what is a GPCR? <laughs> Apparently it's important because it's everywhere in the body and it's there's a lot of the receptors. But um, yeah, that was my first uh, exposure to GPCRs was through this lab and learning about the different mechanisms. Because when I was studying for the MCAT, they would have like the review of GPCRs and it would just be, they activate G proteins and it signals and that's all they do. And yeah. it's just so interesting to see the difference between um, kind of the literature of how people um, teach GPCRs versus the ongoing science behind it and how much more uh, nuanced it is when you look at it through not a class that's trying to simplify it down um, yeah. outlook. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one, it's, uh, it's just one topic among many. And when you work in a GPCR lab or you're exposed to it, you're like, okay, wait a minute, this is like, way more complicated than we think. <laughs> Yeah, the G protein isn't just activating cyclic AMP. That's not <laughs> right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's and it's heter heterotrimeric. It's just not one thing. Um, but um, that's great. I'm gonna ask the question. I kind of know what the answer is. What's your favorite GPCR? Well, I don't know. I might throw you for a curveball because I know than everyone here or in um, Sudar's lab is usually CXCR three, but. I'm very selfish in that my senior project has been mostly on the atypical chemokine receptor, ACKR3. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to have to go with that one. Um, the reason for that is just because, and this is um, part of the project, what we're looking at now is it's a really good system for looking at non-canonical signaling effectors of GPCR signaling, because for those listening who aren't as um aware of ACKR3's function, it was, it's also known as CXCR7. So if that's confusing, apologies. But um, so it was originally known to be a scavenger receptor where it was thought 
thought that it would just uptake CXCL12 and isolate it from CXCR4 to stop it from activating. But um, what Sudar himself found out was that the uh, ACKR3 is able to actually signal through beta restin. It just doesn't couple to G protein. So because of that, we consider it a beta restin biased receptor. So um, then another paper by, I believe it was Nicholas Montpass came out where he showed that when you do a mutation that inhibits beta restin recruitment to the receptor, you still get internalization of it and you still get signaling output of ACKR3. And then I believe it was like a year later, Frederick um, Saber showed that you need phosphorylation of ACKR3, but you don't need beta restin recruitment in order to um, get a signaling output. For them, they were looking at neuronal migration, but that just indicated to us that this receptor is able to signal even without beta restin, even without G protein. So there's potential for, um, there has to be another protein effector maybe that's playing a role in having this receptor signal. So it's just, um, in my opinion, it's a great uh, model for looking at how a receptor can signal without beta restin and G protein, because I think the binary uh, model we have where it can either signal through G protein or beta restin is just limited in um, what is actually physiologically possible for a receptor. I think they found a lot of different ways to be able to signal despite our best efforts of knocking out beta restin or G protein. So it's a really interesting and I'm um, excited to pursue it more. But yeah, I think ACKR3 I would have to go with. So I love it. That. <laughs> <laughs> no, I and no, I love it. And um, I formerly known it as CXCR7 as well. And I was trying to think about, so to make a long story short, Nicolas Monpa was a graduate student in Nicolas Evekera's lab where I did my PhD as well. Uh, and and I, I know Nicolas very well. And the first paper that came out from our lab. I, and I think it came out around the same time as, as Sudar's paper. So that's why I'm like, okay, which one? And so basically long story short, it was uh, the first author was Kalatskaya Irina and I was co-first co with her. And that's the paper where we were looking at beta restin recruitment to CXCR7. Uh, and, and we identified AMD 3100 as a positive allosteric modulator of, of six or seven. And I remember that it was a struggle because the beta rest and recruitment, I think we had six or four as a control and six or four wasn't as potent. And it was just whole this, this whole project, but it was a really cool one. And I think it was a collaboration with, uh, with industry. So six or seven also has this uh, special place. And at the time there were uh, all these uh, chemocentrics, Tom Shaw's group at chemocentrics was very interested in CXCR7 as well. So, um, but I think it's a really cool receptor and it makes you wonder what does it do and in, in the body in general. And then I'll take it one step further since it also shares a ligand with CXCR3 because I always have to bring it back to CXCR3. <laughs> I wonder if if CXCR3 and CXCR7 form heterodimers. I don't think anyone looked at it. Yeah, that's an interesting... I have no literature on CXCR4, CXCR7. I don't know There's, if I've necessarily seen anything with CXCR3. I, would, I wouldn't doubt it if it um, did. Yeah. I think it's a lot less explored if it's so. Yeah, I, 4 and 7 heterodimerize. Uh, it's a paper that came out... <laughs> maybe a year before I joined Tom Sackmar's lab and they were working on 6CR4 and 7. So when I joined the lab for my postdoc, I was like, okay, has anyone ever looked at 3 and 7? 
Yeah. And that's when Tom said, oh, wait a minute. Three has different spice variants. Yumina, do you know what these do? And that was the beginning of a five-year project to figure out what they do. <laughs> Another project, just some tap yeah. on too. But, um, exactly. yeah. And I think like the point you made up about the fact that um, understanding the function of this receptor is well taken because um, we really don't understand much about the cellular output. It's known to be overexpressed in cancer cells. It's expressed in T cells and it's involved in inflammatory pathways. But I think a lot of our understanding of ACAKR3 is still just limited to this idea of it as a scavenger receptor. I think um, an example of this, I was just reading yesterday, it just got published yesterday, but um, this this um, lab, this Maria Steele is the first author of it, but it's looking at the tumor microenvironment of T cells. And they saw that you get a flip of expression in CXCR4 and CXCR7. So with CXCR7, otherwise ACKR3, it's upregulated in these tumor environments, whereas um, CXCR4 is downregulated. So their hypothesis with this paper was that um, you get this downregulation because CXCR4 is involved in tumor egress. So their idea was that maybe CXCR7 is being overexpressed to scavenge this CXCL12 and um, stop CXCR4 from activating. But I just... I feel like that's such an energetically, um, like a very, like it, you need a lot of energy to do that in the sense that there's there are easier ways that the, the cells have figured out, I feel, to cease one's receptor from activating that doesn't require a whole other receptor being overexpressed. So I think just this simplicity of just seeing ACKR3 as um just there to stop a CXCR4 um, signaling is just a bit limited in that it's probably doing something else, some other function, but we just are very limited in our knowledge of it right now. So I agree that that's definitely something that needs to be explored further. No, agreed. And, and you made a great point about our, our tendency as a field to look at G-protein versus beta restin. And I, I don't think it's because we don't know any better. I think it's because those are the two pathways for which we have the most tools. Yes. And we're all aware that and people are going to email me like, how dare you say this about <laughs> all of us? <laughs> but at, at least in, and let's, let's bring it down to me. You know, we know that this works and there is, you need to better understand what GPCRs do. So you'd use the tools that you have, but there is this subculture from what I've seen in the, lit, in, in the literature where, where people are trying to understand, okay, what else? Yeah. And what else can we be measuring and can we go further downstream? And I think the holistic view is trying to measure everything, but then we cannot yet measure everything. And yeah. what do you do with the amount of data that generates? So what does that mean? Yeah. Also just how to interpret that data with like something like ACKR3 with you when you have the chemokines that like are activating other receptors and you can't know for sure if this signaling outputs because it's activating CXCR4 or CXCR7 or CXCR3 if you're looking at yeah. CXCR11. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Which is why I love the chemokine system. I think it's a it's a funky one. It's <laughs> it's funky little still, thing. Yeah. We, we, do, we still I feel like it's the it's the highways in LA, you know, that they show on TV and then one goes going in the, the right direction, just <laughs> <laughs> they know what they're doing. We don't yet. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So um, I was wondering, um, I'm trying to, to, to formulate the question here. And since we're talking about 
methodologies and better understanding how the chemokine system, chemokine receptor system works. If you had a magic wand and you could, you know, make a, an assay a reality to better understand your system of interest, what would that assay look like? Or what would you do with that magic wand at that point? So I don't know if it's so much a magic wand in that I just want, when we talk about the chemokines, just if there's a way to modulate so that they only activate one receptor would be really cool for me. But um, also with our lab, we have a specific interest in um, what we call location bias, which is this understanding that the receptor can signal through different subcellular compartments in the cell. And we show that with CXCR3, but um, we don't really understand why like the profile of the signaling profile of this receptor changes in these environments. You know, is it because of the system? Is there more G protein available in these subcellular compartments than beta restin? Is it because the pH is different or is it because um, the conformation of the receptor is different in the endosome? So I think it would be interesting um, to get, I know people are working on it now, uh, cell permeable nanobodies that can target or put these or receptors in specific confirmations or not even put them in specific, but detect confirmations so that we can see, does the receptor look different? Is there a conformational change in the endosome that's um, what's regulating this difference in signaling profile or is it something about the environment? I think just having that tool and having that knowledge of how this receptor's structure is different at um, different areas of the cell could really help us further understand uh, why the signaling profile is just so different depending on where you are in the cell. Ooh, I love it. And I, you were talking, I was like, yeah, we could look at lipid composition as well yeah, in exactly. these different compartments. Yeah. And then we could, oh, well, we could, it would be really great to be able to sample the the conformational landscape depending on where you are yes um yeah. in the cell i think it's uh, i think it's brilliant it was really i think we still have a long some way to go until we get there but it would be really really interesting to be able to compare based on the location of the receptor what changes in its conformation how do lipids influence that are there any other interactor proteins in those compartments that influence receptor function yeah. to better understand what happened? Why would you signal mm -hmm. uh, in an endosome? Yeah. And it's probably a combination of all of these possibilities plus more. Yeah. We don't even have the tools to even yeah. figure out at this point yet, but yeah. um, it would be interesting for sure. But already knowing these smaller data points will help, would help to better understand. And, also, I'll take it to the next level where uh, where I'll say, can we link any pathophysiological state to some confirmation in some subcellular compartment and say, well, this is the route that we want to target mm -hmm. and come up with either small molecules or uh, antibodies that are obviously getting to the right spot that would modulate this. That's the dream right there. <laughs> yeah, I think we're just speculating here, but that sounds that sounds like a really cool... Uh, really cool topic to think about and hopefully get more information about us as technologies develop. I agree. I love it. I love it. So there is enough work uh, for, for a lot of graduate students and a lot of I other projects. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dogs, we, we won't be out of projects uh, on GPCRs for a while. Certainly. <laughs>
So um, the other question I had for you, Chloe, you're, you're, once you graduate, you mentioned, you know, being in, a, in the dual MD PhD program. Is that a, the route that you're considering taking? Yeah. So um, initially when I joined the lab, I was very uh, much MD focused, ba like base. And I just wanted to look at research, you know, as an interesting thing to do on the side and help with um applications for medical school but just the experience in this lab has just been really great and um understanding um the research and how interesting and how much there's left to learn it really inspired me to consider md phd so yes on the um currently on um i'm focused on applying to MSTP programs in May of the next year so i'll have like one gap year in between where i'm going to be uh working at the nih so hopefully it's not going to be on GPCR stuff. Unfortunately, I'll be um, leaving the field just for a little bit. But um, yeah, I'm really excited about the prospect of applying and talking to people about my research and hearing about theirs to a greater extent than I've done so far. That's great. Uh, can I ask uh, where at NIH? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm joining Ian Fraser's lab. He mm -hmm. works with macrophage um, understanding just both like the genetics and the signaling mechanisms of these different uh, macrophage pathways. So I'm really excited to learn more about that field. I definitely need to do my homework on um, Mac, all of that signaling because it's so different from GPCRs. Yeah. But yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. Well, you'll you'll get to encounter GPCRs uh, oh. and macrophages for sure. So <laughs> you're, you're not. I, don't, I wouldn't say that you're leaving the field. You're just readjusting your 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 view of the field for a while before coming back. Yeah, they it. never go away. They're they're always there. <laughs> Definitely not. And what institute is uh, Ian Fraser's lab at? It's a great question. I should note the um institute in the NIH. It's in. NIAID by any chance? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, NIAID. I'm sorry. I okay. No, to... I mean, you know, there is so uh, the reason I was asking is because the name sounds familiar. Uh and mm -hmm. I also spent 3 years in the B cell molecular immunology lab at NIH at NIAID. And initially mm -hmm. I wasn't supposed to work directly on GPCRs. It was more mouse work, but honestly, I had some such a hard time sacrificing the mice that I came up with a really cool bread project on this very interesting chemokine receptor and, you know, built out an entire project which complemented really well a mouse project. And, and we have mouse data that goes with it. And the name sounded familiar. And the other thing is that NIH, there's all these institutes. And I think at some point somebody said, we need to stop naming the institutes and we <laughs> need to stop having as many. And uh, you'll see once you you get to NIH, there's all these acronyms that are very NIH specific. Mm -hmm. When you're like, okay, I need I need a glossary here, and then write this down so that I can learn it. But you'll uh, you'll learn it pretty quickly. Yeah, I just need a dictionary of all the different acronyms. <laughs> to start yes, learning. exactly. Yeah. Exactly, and and I think you're going to be on the main campus uh, in Bethesda, which yeah. is a huge, huge and beautiful campus. I think you're gonna you're gonna love it. I'm excited. I haven't been outside of North Carolina, so DC is going to be an interesting, exciting change for me and just in terms of environment. So I'm not yeah. stuck with the extreme temperature changes of North Carolina day to day basis. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, since since you're you're 
you know, getting into a new lab soon. Let's let's if you have a couple of minutes, let let's have a chat around. How did you pick the lab, and what was important to you when you picked Ian Fraser's lab? Yeah, so um, I guess I'm in uh, the minority in terms of NIH uh, post back applicants, where I'm I really just wanted to do one year, and um, my reasoning for that is just. MD PhD is about like eight years of my life and I feel I feel prepared and um, developed enough as a student and as an applicant now to just go ahead and apply and then just have that year to just immerse myself into a completely different field and learn um, the different assays and strategies of that field and the literature and hopefully be able to bring my own insight and experience from this lab to maybe help contribute other possibilities of um, assays or experiments that could help but um basically I just really was invested in um the people like just having a PI that would um be yeah. very under first of all understanding of time commitments but also um willing to teach me and excited to um teach someone about the field and both him and the uh, grad student Clinton who I will be working under just seemed very enthusiastic about mentorship and mentorship has always been something that's really important to me so yeah. just having somebody who has the same values of um, what it takes to be a mentor is really important to me. Was so, it Bradfield by any chance? Yes yes that's oh him. my god I knew him <laughs> he's just awesome is. yeah he is Awesome. He is really, really a nice guy. And we actually collaborated. I don't know what happened to that data, but Clinton is just phenomenal. I think you're going to love I'm working so with him. I'm so glad I have your recommendation as well. <laughs> that makes That's me good. Feel That's, no, no, happy. And please say hi to him. And I'm, I'm going to shoot him an email after this. You said, <laughs> you said Clinton. I was like, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> wait a minute. Oh, and it's so funny because the name the Ian Fra Ian Fraser's name sounded so in so um so familiar and now I know where their lab is and yeah. we've collaborated to the extent that he, Clinton was is an amazing scientist mm -hmm. and he helped uh, me with creating CRISPR cell lines and so we've made yeah. GRK2 CRISPR cell lines and um it's a long story but I was working on S1P1 receptors and there's five of them and we needed s1p1r because the hex cells would respond to the to the ligands without transfecting with pcdna transfected cells so i i made i knocked out or at least i tried to knock out all s1p receptors from the hex cells so that we can have a clear background and then retransfect the receptor and I knew nothing about CRISPR and how to do this and Clinton was such an amazing uh support in that regard he's like no oh, this is what you order this is what you do and I uh, know he was just uh I'm, I'm glad you're gonna be working with him yeah I'm glad you know him and can vet for it <laughs> yeah totally yeah. I think he's uh he's really fantastic awesome and what what next after NIH um will just be um, applying for MD-PhD programs, MSTP. I don't have a particular school or location in mind. I think it's just going to be um, just going to base it off of just my experiences with yeah. interviewing and everything. So um, that's for, I don't have as much of a clear outline after NIH, but I know I want to continue pursuing research and medicine simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm excited about 
the prospect of MD PhD. So that's cool. And it's funny because I feel like if I remember correctly, Sudar is also an MD PhD. Yes. He, uh, I believe he, oh my gosh, he started college so much younger. I think or something. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. No gap year. It's just straight through. Insane. Insane. I know. And I think he's he's in that unique category of, of people. I mean, 16. Come on. It's amazing. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And his brother as well. So um, yeah. if I understand. He's like brother. 13 or something. He did college. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Truly. It's a whole other level of smartness here. I feel it's just like slappers. <laughs> exactly. That. Exactly. No, that's that's amazing. Um, and I think I think a lot of you in the lab are um, ha- thinking about this profile of MD PhD, and I feel like there's that connection that you formed with Sudar, and then you, you're looking at his experience. You're like, oh, actually, I really like this. Um, and I have to say that while well, I've interacted now with you, and you've presented at the Dr. GPCR Summit, and I had uh, Dylan in the same, um, you know, pre- presenting at the summit, coming on the podcast, and later. This week, we're going to have somebody else from your lab. I'm not going to say who because the order, well, her episode is coming after yours anyway, so it's the right order. But uh, I feel like you're, all of you are so articulate. And I wish I were that articulate at the time where I was an an undergraduate, Um, you know, and I think it's, it's kudos to all of you guys. I think you're all amazing. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And um, yeah, I agree with you. There's a lot of MD PhDs that have come out of the lab. I know there's two other um, <clears throat> postbacs at the NIH currently right now that were also um, mentees of Dylan's, Noe and Cole, who are also in the um, process of applying to MSTPs. And I just think it's just really, this lab has been just a great opportunity to see that. And I feel that a lot of times, you're limited on resources telling you about MD-PhD if you're not in a lab or know somebody who's doing MD-PhD. You just have a lot less access to resources as um, um, in comparison to MD resources or people telling you what you need for MD. There's not as much exposure to the idea of being a uh, physician scientist, which I think is a shame because I there's a lot of super intelligent and creative people that would I feel it'd be great at this um, opportunity, but yeah, I think just expanding um, the resources available and just the knowledge of um, what a career as a physician scientist looks like might yeah. recruit even more um, undergraduates to start considering the possibility yeah. that it might be something they really find a lot of um, worthwhile in. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of resources are you thinking? I'm trying to think because I I agree. I didn't know about the lack of resources in around you know the MD PhD track. I do know more about the lack of resources around the uh, you know non academic tracks because that's also a black hole for a lot of trainees. Uh, but what kind of resources are you thinking of? Yeah, I mean it, when I say resources, it's very broad. But um, what comes to mind for me. Uh, Duke here has so many great resources and opportunity for understanding for their pre-meds and people who want to get into the um, medical school. And they're really, really on top of that, like telling, like setting up from freshman year, like what, like what, what you can look for, for that. But a lot of it I've noticed through um, 
looks preparing for uh, applications, a lot of it's just MD based. And then it's kind of second, like you have to go out of your way and ask about MD PhD or about DO or any of the other combination Mm -hmm. uh, resources to really get an understanding of how it's different. So like a lot of their preparation, uh, for instance, they uh, when they're telling you what you should have on your application, uh, research is the bottom of the list. They're like, oh, it's nice if you have it, but you don't necessarily need it. And a lot of just the info you're getting is just very, very MD centered, where for like MD, PhD, research is obviously a lot more important. So I think not only that, but also just <clears throat> exposure to um people like having people that you can come in contact with because there's so um so much of a smaller proportion of MD PhD students in compared to in comparison to MD you really have to go out of your way or know somebody who knows somebody who's an MD PhD if you want to like ask somebody or um to get into uh, a conversation about what that entails or you can just get really lucky like me and join a lab where there's a lot of MD PhD resources and opportunities and people to ask about their experience but I just feel like that's a very, I got very lucky in that. And I think we could be doing more in terms of increasing access to um, people and to information on PhD and how it's different from MD because it's it's a different process and there's other things to consider that are. That's good to know. Uh, we'll keep that in mind, not necessarily in the context of Dr. GPCR, but we're working on it's a long story. It was a project that we started that got kind of stopped and we're trying to to get it back on track. And I'm always interested in hearing more about what do people need? Mm-hmm. Like you're a graduate student or you're an undergrad and you're planning your career. What is the information that you're looking for? Is it available? And if yes, where? And is it the complete information that you're looking for or not? And and that's really valuable. So thanks, thanks for that. Right. No, no, that's, that's really cool. And I'm trying to think, uh, like my, my brain started working. I'm going to have to talk about it uh, once we start recording. All right. Last but not least, top three aha moments uh, that you had. I think I feel like at this point um, in my career, it's a lot more. I don't have as many aha moments more than just, oh, oh no. <laughs> not, oh, no, but just like, okay. oh, I was doing this completely wrong. But um, I think the situation that st- stands out for me was just this summer. I was really working on cloning um, a nanobit construct for the ACKR3 so that we could look at potential um, proteins recruitment to the receptor of like non-canonical signaling effectors. So um, while I was cloning this, I was doing restriction digest and I just left out like it was it wasn't working for months and I just kept doing it and I was getting really frustrated and the result was I wasn't putting an ATATAT at the end of my primers mm-hmm. to like allow the restriction enzyme to have room to actually recognize the yeah. uh, enzyme binding site. So once I changed the primers, it worked like in the first time I did it. So it was just more oh. like the oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. oh, moment. It wasn't really aha. Uh-huh. I didn't figure, I didn't reinvent yeah. the wheel. I just figured out, oh, I need to read protocols more closely. But um, <laughs> I think, um, in terms of aha moments, I don't really have specific ones, but I think uh, I just want to replicate the idea. I uh, feel one of your podcast uh, guests said, well, I think it was Michelle Bouvier, said like the excitement of just seeing data for the first time, like being the first person to see that data and being able to interpret it without the um, bias of like whatever anyone else is saying, their opinions on and just having everyone just having 
to interpret that and what that means. And the next step is just something that I always enjoy doing. So just the aha moment of seeing whether your um, assay worked or you're seeing something with significant difference is always just really, really cool to me in that sense. It's rewarding for sure. You get what I call that dopamine rush. Yeah, exactly. All long for. <laughs> yes, it's working. I didn't know yeah. completely right. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Agreed. Agreed. All right. Thanks, Chloe. I really appreciate your time. Of course. Thank you so much and for having me. Of course. And I wish you the best of luck uh, at NIH. I, I can't wait to to email <laughs> Clinton. I'm like, hey, <laughs> you're you're getting a star here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to this Dr. GPCR podcast episode. We would like to thank our guest, our Dr. GPCR team members, Attila, Ines, Monse, Ivana, Andrina, Balint, and Julia. A huge thank you to our ecosystem partners for their support, Domain Therapeutics, GPCR Therapeutics, Design Pharmaceuticals, Montana Molecular, and Orion Biotechnology. You can connect with us and with our partners directly in the ecosystem, so make sure that you join us today. Also, please subscribe to the Dr. GPCR newsletter, Find us on YouTube, and if you like our podcast, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast. You can also leave us a testimonial on our website. Another way to support us is to share your favorite Dr. GPCR program with your network and colleagues. You can always email us with any questions or suggestions at hello at drgpcr.com. Until next time, stay safe.